0: Father, we praise you for a new day. We praise you for another day to worship together. We praise you for a faith family to worship with. But most of all, we praise you for the reason to worship. We praise you for who you are and for what you have done. We praise you for your loving kindness, your mercy and grace, your power and authority, your sovereignty, faithfulness, and your goodness. It's in light of who you are, it's in light of your holiness that we see our sinfulness and we repent. Even now, as we sit here this morning, God, Would you search our hearts? I would invite you in the quietness of this moment as you prepare your heart to hear God's word, would you ask him to cleanse you? And we thank you, God, that you hear our prayer. And we thank you, God, that you forgive our sin, because Christ paid for our sin. And it it's because He paid for our sin that forgiveness is, is possible, and we can know what Psalm chapter 103, verse 10 tells us that you do not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities, because of Christ. Thank you. We ask for your help this morning. We ask for your help for the institution of the family. We believe family is your design and is sacred and you love it. So we ask now for your protection over families, over marriages, over parents and children and grandchildren. We recognize that that life can be hard And in our flesh, we are weak. And the world is full of temptation. And the evil one comes to kill and destroy. And left to ourselves, we are without hope. And yet, the promise of God to his people is that we're never alone. We are never alone. Thank you, God. Thank you that Jesus has come to give life and give it more abundantly. Thank you that he has come to give those who believe the spirit of God who is with us, who is in us, and who empowers us. And though the tempter rages, we know that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. So God, we ask for victory over sin, victory over deception, over temptations of Satan and over the world. As we remember Jesus' words, that in the world we will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. We pray in faith. We pray in faith, not for a, 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 in confidence for a particular outcome, but in confidence in you. Our confidence lies in you, God, our good and gracious Father. Father. And Lord, as we turn our hearts to your word, would you you comfort us with your word? Would you confront us with our sin? Would you conform us more and more into the image of your Son? Through the power of your Spirit, we pray these things. And now, God, prepare our hearts to accept your word. Silence in us any voice but your own, that hearing We may also obey your will through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. If you have a Bible, I invite you to take it and turn to Genesis chapter one. If you're using a Pew Bible, I'm not kidding, it's on page one. In the recent past, as technology has developed, and access to information has continued to increase, we now are able to learn more and more about our family history than ever before. Right? Through websites like 23andMe and Ancestry.com, we can find about, out about our lineage, even if our grandparents or parents might not be able to help us. Our interest in knowing our history is in part because our origins... Our beginnings matter, that that where we come from, our past informs us, it it affects us. It it might not be the only thing that affects us, but, but it certainly does. On a fundamental level, on a foundational level, what we believe about the beginning of all things certainly impacts our view of ourselves, and of the world. If we evolved from another species over millions and millions of years, if there is no creator at all, this would call into question the very meaning of your life and my life. It would call into question the value of human life. Why would any life matter? Certainly, why would any life matter related to anything else in the world? But if there is a creator, if there is a creator who is responsible for making all things, for bringing into existence and sustaining human life, then we... We who are the created are in debt to this creator. And we are accountable then to that creator as having been created by him. So origins matter. And today we're beginning a new series of messages on the book of Genesis. If you're familiar with the book of Genesis, there are 50 chapters. We're going to be here a while. But as we study this book, we will be presented with the unfolding story of God's work in the world. And this morning, I would like to offer a bit of an introduction to the book, and next week, we will actually begin the text. First, the title of the book, as you've already heard, is the book of Genesis. The word Genesis is the Greek word meaning beginning or origin. So, this is the book of beginnings or the book of origins. If we don't know the origins of life, then we will not and we cannot understand life as we live it now. It's that important. This book, all 50 chapters, is a historical historical narrative. It is recounting the Genesis, or the beginning of all things. The writer, or the author of Genesis, is a man named Moses. Moses, we don't actually meet in the Bible until the second book of the Bible, Exodus. Exodus which he also wrote. Moses actually wrote the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They are often referred to as the books of Moses, uh, these first five books, or what sometimes is called the Pentateuch, which penta is the number five. As we go through this book, we hold to an interpretation that we call Literal, grammatical, and historical. That is that we believe the Bible first to be God's word and therefore should be interpreted literally or normally. We believe in a historical interpretation of the scripture, meaning these events actually happened. These are real people. They're not parables or fictional stories that teach good morals or good principles. Additionally, we recognize that words matter, grammar matters, and we want to understand the words as they were originally written by the writer for the original reader. Now, as we go, there, of course, go throughout the Bible, there are, of course, figures of speech. We understand that. There are metaphors. There is poetry. And we all need to, we need to understand all that in its appropriate way context. But the original writers of the Bible had an original reader. It wasn't necessarily you and me. So we must know what the original reader was meant to understand. This informs the nature of our interpretation. It must be understood in order to interpret the text accurately. So sometimes you'll hear people say things about the Bible. and They'll say, well, what does that mean to me? That is not the primary question that we ask of the Bible, what it means to me. It's what does it mean? What did God mean for it to mean? Not what do I want it to mean? There are a lot of things in the Bible that that, that we might say, I'd like that to mean something different than it says, right? We don't have that luxury. Literal, grammatical, historical, what does it mean? Interpretation and application are two different things. We must first interpret the passage and then apply the passage. Or we will miss the point of the passage and misapply the text, which is frequently done by many, many Christians. So as we seek to understand the book, it's helpful as well for us to understand the structure of the book. The book can be divided into two halves or two parts. And the first could be called the primeval history or the the ancient or uh, the, the the ancient history. Luther says of these chapters, this is chapters 1 through 11, that they are, that is Martin Luther, uh, they are certainly the foundations for the whole Scripture. Chapters 1 through 11. The foundations for the whole Scripture. So it's kind of important that we get a grasp of these first 11 chapters. This is the first part. And it begins with that familiar Verse. You can see it in verse 1 of your Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The entire Bible begins by saying, God is in all of it. God started all of it. As we go through the text, you will hear familiar stories that so many of us have grown up on and heard over and over again. But these stories are not merely moralistic teachings. Sometimes we we teach a story and we'll we'll come away with, be more like so-and-so. And And it's not the intent of the author. There are things we can learn. Certainly the characters are examples for us. But the the point of writing was not for us to be more like so-and-so. But it's to understand something about God and his work in the world. These accounts are, are God's work in the lives of real people, real history, which all of that has meaning and purpose that we want to try to understand. And as we read the history, we ought not to miss the forest through the trees. Sometimes we can read the, the book of Genesis so close up that we miss out on what Genesis is bringing us into, what it's introducing us into. These first chapters are, are detailing God and the world, the whole world. This is a, a macrocosm. It is, it is a, a macro view of history. It's, it's universal history, chapters one through 11. Here we learn about creation of the whole world. We learn about the creation of humankind. We, we learn about Adam, and we, about Eve, and their descendants. We read about this place called the Garden of Eden, or the garden that is in Eden. And we hear about the fall of man into sin, being deceived by the devil in the form of a serpent. We see the descent of humanity from paradise in the garden to deception, to discontentment, to fear, to distrust, to murder. And then in chapter 6, we see a summarization of the condition of humanity. If you just turn over just a few pages to chapter 6 and look at verse 5. Chapter 6, verse 5. It's on page 5. And it says this. Chapter 6, verse 5. And the Lord saw the wickedness of man, that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually from the creation in the garden to perfection in paradise by chapter six we are already descended to only evil continually absolute wickedness then we read about Noah and we read about God's judgments on mankind and the earth and we read about God's plan of salvation Through these first 11 chapters, though, we also encounter the promise of God, which the rest of the book shows the unfolding fulfillment of that promise. Really what we would call the plan of redemption. And though the fulfillment of that redemption does not come in Genesis, we see many evidences and many signs that point us to the coming fulfillment we will see signs in very unlikely places. We'll see signs of God's fulfillment as he is delving out punishment for sin. We'll see signs of God's fulfillment in the genealogies throughout the book, which do not merely represent a a, a list of names or a family lineage, but rather documents the preservation of the people of God, of the seed of the woman, Or the offspring of the woman that we see in chapter 3, which is the promise of God. Now We'll get to genealogies. And and here's the thing. Genealogies are weird, right? So-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so. And And if you do your Bible reading, you get to that point, you're like, Lord, I don't know. I don't know what this means. I don't know what I'm supposed to take away from this. Like, what is this? How does this apply to me? Like, I'm not spiritually uplifted by a genealogy, right? We, we, struggle, we struggle with the genealogies, even because, like, who can pronounce those names, right? Like, it's going to be terrible when I have to read those genealogies. I'm just telling you, it's going to be terrible. But here's the point. The point isn't about pronunciation or, or, lack, or lack thereof. The point is, as one writer says, that the genealogies are actually the backbone of Genesis. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine reading the book of Genesis and thinking, actually, they're the backbone of the book. That actually, they matter. And, and, and we see it multiple times throughout the book. Actually, 11 times you will read the phrase, these are the generations of, and then do will go on to tell about the genealogy of a particular family, a particular man. They're detailing the children of Israel. They're, they're, they're detailing how, how God is preserving this line. They're detailing how the promise of God in chapter 3 is, is still alive. It will continue to be alive throughout the Old Testament. Well, then as we move into chapter 12, we move into the second part of the book. And this is where we, we hear all about the, what, what's called the patriarchs, the patriarchal history. The first 11 chapters are, are a macro view, a, a macronism. And then in chapters 12 through 50, it goes to a microcosm. It goes down to to one family, the family of Abraham. That the focus of of the writing of Moses shifts from this, this grand view, this universal history, down to one family. And we learn about a man named Abraham. And we learn about the origins of the nation of Israel. And here in these chapters, we'll see familiar stories from these patriarchs who you know their names. Men like Abraham, chapters 12 through 25, it's all about Abraham, namely about Abraham. In chapters 26 through 36, it's about his grandson, Jacob. In chapters 37 through 50, it's namely about Joseph. Now, there are certainly other characters that we will meet along the way, like Abraham's wife. Sarah, their firstborn son, together, Isaac. hear about Jacob's brother, Esau, all of Joseph's brothers, of course. But if we looked at it in the main sections, Abraham, Jacob, and Joseph. These chapters are in part God, God at work, fulfilling his promise to and through Abraham and to all his people. As we look through these 50 chapters over the next, well, we'll just say several months, there, there are any number of themes that we can kind of have in our mind as we're reading through these stories. Things that we can be looking for and thinking about. Themes like the transcendence of God, that, that God is over all of this that God sits above all of it, that he is the creator king, that he rules over everyone and everything. A truth that is still true today. The transcendence of God is not only for Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 and 50. It is true for February 5th, 2023. He is transcendent over time, over history, over you and over me. He is sovereign. In Genesis, we see the sovereignty of God, that he knows all things, that he rules, all, that he controls all the things. We see the fallenness of mankind and the consequence and the curse of sin. We used to tell our students all the time that life is choices and choices have consequences. So make the right choices. When you read the book of Genesis, you see that life is choices and choices have consequences. Sin has consequences. And you can make your choices all that you want, but you can't determine the consequences. And Genesis tells us about the consequences for sin. From the paradise with God to being exiled from God. From being in the garden to being east of Eden. We also see of a covenant made between God and Abraham. A divine promise of land and seed and blessing. And we see, as has already been said, the preservation of the seed of the woman. This promise from from Genesis 3.15 on that God would fulfill his promise to his people. But as we walk through this book, I would like for us to see and think and have this underlying recognition of another theme throughout the book. It is the theme of God's grace. Now, Genesis, as we know, is in the Old Testament. It is part of five books that are called the books of the law. And when we think about the law, we don't typically think about Well, grace. We think of those as two separate things, law and grace. And yet, as we read through Genesis, and I invite you to begin reading through Genesis, but as we study through it, time and time again, Genesis is going to show us that though people sinned against God, though they failed to obey God, God was still gracious. God was slow to anger. He was abounding in love. God gave second chance after second chance. We see grace early on. If you look at chapter three, I'll just point one to you, one out to you. In chapter three, verse 21. "So Adam and Eve have sinned, and God has come to execute punishment upon Adam and Eve and the serpents. But after he does that, in verse 21. It says, and the Lord made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Now you might read that passage? and say like, okay, he gave them a coat. <laughs> no, he clothed them. He didn't have to do that. That's a grace. And where did the skins come from? Someone had to die. There had to be a sacrifice in order for Adam and Eve to be clothed in order for them to be protected, in order for them to be kept safe in the next season of their life. Even there we see grace. We see it in the midst of of the human wickedness that we read in chapter six. In chapter six, verse eight, we read verse five, but in verse eight, it tells us, though all the the thoughts and intents of these people were only evil continually, someone, Noah, Noah, found favor in the eyes of God. And that word favor is the word grace. Noah found grace in the eyes of God. And from there, we see that the ark was, was commissioned to be built. To be built as a rescue. As a, a way of salvation for or from the judgment of God. We see God's grace in his promise to Abraham of land, of seed, that is, of a family, and of blessing. We see grace after Adam, Abraham, and Sarah take matters into their own hands and try to create their own family on their own through Sarah's handmaid. We see the grace there as as God, even after that, God miraculously provides a child through Sarah who was barren. We see it again. On Mount Moriah in chapter 22, as Isaac is about to be sacrificed by Abraham according to God's command. And there we find a sacrificial ram caught in the thicket by his horns. God's grace. And we see it in how Joseph, sold into slavery, into Egypt... In jail, then raised to a position of power. All of that, years, maybe 17 years, used, how God used all those years to save the children of Israel. Chapter 50, verse 20, you, 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 you know these verses. Joseph says this, as for you, you meant evil against me. He's talking to his brothers. But God meant it for good. Now we usually stop there. But what did God mean it for good? What was the good? the rest of the verse, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. God showed grace to Abraham's family by sending Joseph ahead of them to prepare for the famine in order that the people of God, the nation of Israel, would be preserved. In order that what? The seed of the woman, the line, the lineage would be preserved. That's grace. Grace. Grace is all throughout the book, a book which is the beginning of what we would call the redemptive narrative or or the, the meta narrative of the Bible. That is the meta narrative of the Bible, meaning the big story of the Bible is redemption. It is the redemptive narrative. It's the story, it's the story that all the other stories point to. What's the redemptive narrative? It is creation, fall redemption, restoration. You want to break the Bible up very simply? There it is. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. That's, that's, the, that's the narrative. That's the story of the Bible. That God made it, that we have fallen. The promise of redemption in this part is a, a majority of the Bible, isn't it? The, the promise of redemption and the coming of redemption and the explanation of the redemption until finally when Christ returns, the restoration of all things. That's the redemptive narrative that Genesis begins to point us to. But what is the redemptive narrative but God's grace? God's redemptive plan to bless the world. That's what we see in Genesis. How he did it through, through a family, the family of Abraham. It was meant to undo what Adam had done. It was meant to crush the, the head of the serpent and to make all things new. That's the redemption that Genesis looks forward to, the promised redemption that would come. It would come. We wouldn't see it. We won't see it in Genesis. We will not see it in Genesis. Not until thousands of years later would God's promise be accomplished through Jesus through the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of David, the Promised One, the seed of the woman. The one who said, when he inaugurated his, his public ministry, he said, The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. When Jesus came, he started the kingdom. It's not here. We know that. It's not here. It's here in parts, and one day will be in full. The kingdom that one day, we will be part of the kingdom when, when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, the kingdom of, of when the creation is redeemed, the kingdom of when every tear is wiped away, the kingdom when, when Jesus, King Jesus, rules and reigns over all things, when God will dwell with man in righteousness. That is yet to come, and we look forward to such a day. That is the plan of redemption. That is the Redemptive narrative. So, in light of this reality, in light of knowing the end, in light of grace, we read Genesis. We study Genesis with an eye towards Jesus. They say Jesus doesn't show up till Matthew. Like, well, how we? No, we're reading with an eye towards Jesus. Now, we had just said a few minutes ago when we talked about interpretation that our interpretation leads us to understand the original intent of the author to the original reader. And that is true, and we will do that. And that is necessary and important. But as New Testament believers, we read the Bible from right to left. Douglas, excuse me, Dr. Crawford Lourdes says that Jesus, that that living this side of the cross, we read the Old Testament in the shadow of the cross. You can imagine that picture. Why? Because we know that the Redeemer has come. So when we're hearing all of these things about a coming Messiah, about the seed of the woman, about atonement, When we're hearing all those things, we can't help but see how Jesus is the fulfillment of that because we know that Jesus has come and that he is coming again. We know that he has paid for our sin through his very blood on the cross. We can't help but see the Christ-centeredness of Genesis. And as we should, again, if you turn your Bible to Luke chapter 24, If you're using a pew Bible, that's page 885. As you're turning, this is after Jesus has risen from the dead. So this is crucifixion, burial, resurrection has happened. Jesus is alive and he's walking on the road to Emmaus. And he shows up on this road and there's other disciples that are on this road. And for reasons unknown to us, They don't recognize him. And he begins to talk to them, and they're telling him about the the past events of what's happened in Jerusalem. That is the death of Jesus and the questions about the resurrection. And in verse 27, Jesus says this to them. and beginning with, sorry, Jesus doesn't say this. Luke says this about what Jesus did. Verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What do we take away from that? We take away from that that Jesus was Christ centered. Jesus' view of the Old Testament was that the Old Testament was about him. So we look at the Old Testament. We should be seeing evidences of Jesus. We should be seeing things pointing us to the fulfillment of Jesus. In the end, both the New Testament and the Old Testament is primarily about Jesus. Why? Because there is no other name given among men under heaven whereby we must be saved. He is the only name. So rightly and obviously, the Bible is about Jesus. So as we read this ancient history, as we hear about these, these old stories, that they, some of you grew up on these old stories, of these patriarchs, you might remember the, there's the story, but, but the story is pointing to something else. The point is, that story is pointing to a greater story. The story isn't about Abraham. It's not about Jacob. It's not about Joseph. It's about Jesus. So This same Jesus that the Old Testament points us to is the same Jesus who the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 calls the last Adam. We're gonna read about the first Adam in a few weeks. Paul calls Jesus the last Adam. Why? Because Jesus came to do what Adam couldn't do. Jesus came to obey God fully, to fulfill the law of God. In Romans chapter five, we find that in the place of death, Jesus brought life. Adam, through his sin, brought death. Jesus brings life. Adam, through his sin, brought condemnation. And Jesus, through his life, brought justification and righteousness. It is Jesus who is the offspring of the woman. It is Jesus who, through his death, crushed the head of the serpent and defeated Satan. As Genesis, in much of the Bible, points us to the mercy and the grace of God, we see all of that most fully and clearly in Jesus. And when we do, we must respond to that. We can't just say, oh, that's neat. That's neat how that does that. That's neat how the Bible's connected. No. We say, that's amazing. God is pointing us to redemption. He's telling us that he hasn't forgotten you. He's telling us that there's a salvation plan for you and for me, for all of the world, for all who would repent and believe. We must see our need for Jesus. We must see our need for God's grace through him. And we must believe as we see God's work in the world in Genesis, God's work in the life of Abraham. We are reminded that God is at work even today in our lives. Do you know that? Do you see it? Do you see him? Have you seen him for for not just his work, but for his redemptive work, for his salvation, salvation that he offers to anyone who will repent and believe? Do you recognize Jesus this morning as the savior that you need? If you haven't, we invite you to do just that. We invite you to see there's this one who with his very body took upon himself the sin of the world. Through his death, through his shed blood, provides remission. That is forgiveness of our sins. And only through his death can that be true. Turn one more time with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you're using a pew Bible, that's page 958. This morning, as we observe the Lord's table, if you know Jesus... If you've trusted Jesus, if you're believing on Jesus by faith, if you're walking in fellowship with Jesus, we invite you to participate as we give thanks. That's what this, this service is. The communion is giving thanks for what? For the death of Jesus. Because without it, we are lost. But if you don't know Jesus this morning, if you don't know him as your Savior, if you're not walking in fellowship with him, we're asking you to, to refrain from taking of these, of these elements of the bread and of the cup. And we do so upon the authority of Scripture. If you're in your Bible there, you can look at chapter 11, verse 27. 11, verse 27. And Paul writes this, whoever eats, whoever therefore eats, The bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. So we invite you not not to partake of, of these things if you're not a Christian, but rather to receive Jesus Himself, to rather come to Him in repentance and faith. And receive something more than than an element to remember. Receive Jesus himself. Receive the forgiveness of sins. The hope of heaven. The eternal life that starts now and lasts forever. If you will will but repent and believe. This verse invites us to be careful about our consumption of communion. And then verse 28 says, let a person examine himself then. And so eat the, of the bread and drink of the cup, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. So we would do well at this time to pause before we go further and ask for God to search our heart that we might discern our own heart and seek His forgiveness. Let's pray. On the screen in front of you will be a, a couple slides of prayers that may help you guide you during this time. Take just a few minutes of silence before we continue. God, hear our prayer. Even now as we sit here this morning, you've heard the prayers of your people. pray that you would answer those. Where repentance happened this morning, with the confidence in your word, we know that forgiveness has followed. Where if we confess our sins, You are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we thank you. And now, God, as we take of this bread, we remember. We remember the body of Jesus. The body that was pierced for our transgressions. The body that that hung on a cross a body that physically endured torture and death. All to absorb your wrath against our sin and to provide a way for us to know the salvation that you offer. So as we eat this bread, God, we remember and we give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Apostle Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your love for us, that it was so deep that you gave us your Son, Jesus, to die on this cross in our place, and God, as we remember your body, let us also remember and be thankful for the shedding of your blood. As the writer of Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. So as we take this cup, Lord, let us remember and be thankful for that sacrifice on our behalf. We ask these things in your name. Amen. In the same way, you also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this Bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And Father, we give thanks once again for the work of Jesus on our behalf. For his body and for his blood. We remember. Help us not to forget. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.